Acts 11:25 to 30, and that's page 1106. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the other church, with the church, and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Beth. Good evening, everyone. My name's Chris. I'm the curate here. Um, hello, Beth's mum and dad. Um, <clears throat> before I start, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can meet together. Thank you for the gift of money. Uh, and thank you that you have a lot to say to us about money. Would you open our hearts and lead us by your Holy Spirit? into healthy attitudes about money. Amen. So what is it about money? What was that thing that just happened when Beth got up and said, we're going to talk about money today? I watched the room, and I watched everyone just go, <coughs> there's just this sort of tension about money. Why is it so hard to talk openly and honestly about it? Why are there so many unwritten social rules about what you are and aren't allowed to say to other people about money. Most of all for me, why is it so hard to not let my entire life be about money? Now I'm not going to attempt to answer really any of those questions that were either on screen or probably the ones that you've come up with tonight. What I want us to talk about is the attitude that the Bible presents us that we should try and have about money so that when we come back to those questions that you've been asking that were up on the screen there, we've based ourselves in the right mindset that we can think about how to answer them in a different way. Money, pretty obviously, is the enabler to so many things. It's really, really helpful. It's a tool. It's a helpful tool for, for safety, for comfort, for enjoyment, for convenience, for survival. But, but almost every single helpful thing that we can spend money on can turn into an unhelpful thing if we overspend money on it. Enjoyment can quickly turn into excess. Comfort can turn into opulence. Convenience into laziness and so on. And bit by bit, if we keep on doing that, we get used to having everything we want. And we forget the difference between want and need. And then, instead of money being a useful tool, money gradually becomes our master. And that is what's tough, right? What's really tough is that there is almost nobody helping us to identify where that line is. The line between what you need to buy and what you want to buy. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Our economy literally depends on you spending more and more every year. And what that means is every company out there is eager to help you spend your money, ideally with them. 
and they are heavily invested in doing so. So this year, for the first time in history, $1 trillion will be spent worldwide on advertising. $1 trillion. In the UK, advertisers this year will spend over $600 per person to speak to you. That is a lot of money being spent to get inside your head and convince you to spend more money. $600 for each of you in one year. So, and over time, the effect of this is that every single one of us, none of us are immune, every single one of us can get this little voice inside us, which is a combination of our own, frankly, self-leaning human nature, combined with the culture around us, begins to shape our attitudes and choices. And this little voice says, you need to get more stuff. It says, you're more valuable if you have more. It says you need to get more money in order to be able to get more stuff. And we need to recognize that being a follower of Jesus requires us to think about money differently. So let's take a look at the passage that we heard earlier. Thank you, Beth, so much for reading that. So please look back at Acts 11, 25 to 30, if you still have it open. Now, it's really, really easy to read this passage as just a a, a historical part of Acts. So just a reporting on basically some of the admin that happened in the church as it grew. If we take a second to look deeper, maybe think about some of the context around what happened in what we just heard, thinking about some of the motivations of the individuals that are talked about, then we can stumble across something really, really astonishing. Okay, so the context is, the scene is, Agabus the prophet comes to the newly formed church in Antioch and prophesies that there will be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. By the way, in case you're wondering, he was absolutely right in this prophecy. So uh, we have various historical accounts, Josephus, the Jewish historian, Tacitus, Suetonius, the Roman historian, even Bede, the English historian, the news got that far. All of them make reference to this severe uh, Roman worldwide famine that took place in the year AD 46 when Claudius was emperor. So so what's clear to us from from the scripture is that the Christians in Antioch heard this prophecy and they believed Agabus. He prophesied, they heard it, and they said, okay, we believe that that is a word from God. And then, granted it's not recorded, but we can fairly safely assume they got together and said, what are we going to do about that? Because then we can see that they decided to send gifts probably financial and resource gifts, to the apostles back in Judea, the leaders of the church, so that they could distribute it. So all making sense, right? Except actually it doesn't. Place yourself in that meeting where they're trying to decide what to do. Hey guys, Agabus has just prophesied there's going to be a terrible famine across the whole Roman world. Oh no, famines are terrible. People starve in their thousands. The little food that can be grown becomes so expensive that even the richest of the rich can't afford to eat. And with the whole Roman world being affected, that is, that's millions of people. 
wait a minute, we live in Antioch. Is that part of the Roman world? Yes. So this is going to affect us? Yeah, probably really badly. And all of us in this room and everyone we know out there, we are all going to suffer severe financial hardship and some of us might not even survive it. What are we going to do? I know, let's give most of our money away. Brilliant idea, let's do it. Do you see what I mean? It doesn't make sense under any recognisable system that we have. The first thing that any of us would do upon receiving news of impending financial disaster would be to check that we had enough money to keep ourselves and our families safe from harm and then squirrel it away for when we needed it. If the disaster is going to be a big one, such as the whole Roman Empire being affected, then logic dictates that you should keep hold of what you've got. You're probably going to need it. Certainly wait to find out just how bad it's going to be before you start thinking about giving things away. But that's not what they did. As soon as they got word of the coming famine, they said, let's send as much as we can to our brothers and sisters in Judea. And to us, the behavior doesn't make sense. And if we're honest, the attitude sitting behind the behavior probably doesn't make sense. But I think a big part of the reason why it doesn't make sense to us is that little voice I mentioned earlier. The voice that says, accumulate, accumulate. Keep it for yourself. The, 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 the Christians in Antioch, their decisions, their choices are completely incompatible with that voice. Around about 100 years later, a letter was written to a Roman official. This is the letter, um, if you fancy reading it. Um, it was written to a Roman official called Diognetius. Uh, Diognetius was not a follower of Christian, but he was interested in these strange people popping up all over the empire who were calling themselves Christian. So it was written by um, Matthias, I believe his name was. So this is how he described, almost like a, observing on a safari, this is how he described these followers of Christ. They live in the flesh, but they are not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon earth but they are citizens of heaven. Obedient to the laws, they yet live on a level that transcends the law. Christians love all people, but all people persecute them. They live in poverty, but enrich many. They are totally destitute, but possess an abundance of everything. They suffer dishonor, but that is their glory. They answer abuse with blessing, and they answer insults with respect. For the good they do, they receive the punishment of malefactors, but even then they rejoice as though receiving the gift of life. They live in poverty, but they enrich many. See, the Christians in the early church made themselves poor by giving all their stuff away. But the more I think and pray about this, the more I come to realize that I don't think 
They're trying to make themselves poor. Because, and hear me on this, it is not more holy to be poor than rich. Once again, it is not more holy to be poor than rich. Poverty is not their objective. They just don't care about money as much as they care about the kingdom. They don't care about money as much as they care about kindness. They don't care about money as much as they care about generosity. They don't care about money as much as they care about feeding the hungry, welcoming the stranger, clothing the poor, healing the sick, and visiting the prisoner. They don't care about money that much. And if doing all of those things means they end up being less comfortable, their life is less entertaining, less convenient, they're less well-fed, then so be it. It's a price they've considered and a price they're willing to pay. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I long for my discipleship to look something like that. But even even as I say these words to you, I can feel my brain fighting back against me, peppering me with reasons of why it's not feasible to live like they lived. I long for money to have a looser grip on my heart. I long to place the values of the kingdom above our culture's values of consuming and spending and hoarding that have embedded themselves deep within me. Now, in a little while, we're going to get practical. Um, We're going to think about some ideas for ways to live, ways that we might consider uh, changing that can help us to begin to be set free from the value system of our culture around money and to start to give space to kingdom values and attitudes to money instead. But first... I think we need to come before Jesus and acknowledge there's a problem. So um, if the band would like to come up. Um, we've split this talk in two because actually I, I think at this moment the right thing to do is to come to God in worship. And, and as we worship, I want to give you the opportunity to invite God to restore our perspective of Jesus as Lord of our lives and Lord of our money. Would you please stand as you're able when we worship? So, I promised some practical thoughts on how we can start to reconfigure our minds and make our attitudes and choices around money a core part of our discipleship. Now, there are loads and loads of different things we can do. There are loads of questions we can ask. You saw some of them earlier, and I can't possibly cover even a fraction of them. So first and foremost, I want to encourage you to keep on talking about money. Reject the taboo that says it's not appropriate to talk about money in polite society. Being a follower of Jesus works best when we work together. So in your small groups, in in life on Tuesdays, in your friendships, in your families, Keep talking, share encouragements, share advice, share experiences, share your challenges. And also, before I get into the practical stuff, I want to say, 
If money is causing you serious challenges, serious problems, for example, if you have debts, debts with payments that are unmanageable or, or payments that are causing you anxiety, please do not suffer alone. There are people who can help. There are very, very good people in our community even who can help. So come and speak to me, speak to Simon, Louise, Jack, anyone on the team, um, and we would love to put you in touch with people or organisations who can help you. Okay, three pieces of practical advice that I think can give us the best starting foundation for putting kingdom above money. Number one, budget. I know. I know some of us are natural budgeters and some of us are not. <clears throat> I myself am not. Uh, if I was left to my own devices, I would probably not record a single financial transaction, much less plan for future ones. I can see many of you nodding. Uh, so it's good to know I'm not alone, but I'm afraid my sisters and brothers of the non-budgeting camp, we are wrong and they are right. <laughs> Just like exercise, praying, reading, eating your vegetables, the value of budgeting is not a matter of opinion or personal preference. It just is better. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to become like them. That doesn't mean we have to be entirely meticulous. It's a joke for anyone who thinks I'm not. I love you all very much. But it doesn't mean we all have to be entirely meticulous with every single penny and suck every bit of freedom and joy out of life. There is still space for spontaneity and creativity. But if you want to loosen money's grip on you, then the first thing you need to know is what you have and what you have been doing with it. If, if your money continues just to be this abstract thing in your mind, then the likelihood of you not being in control of it is really quite high. And if you're not in control of it, then over time you are at greater risk of it beginning to be in control of you. So take some time, make some space this week. Sit down with a cup of tea, a budget template, lots and lots of free ones online, built into Excel, that kind of thing. Your banking app and get familiar with your income, your financial obligations, your plans and the money that you have left over. And if you are anything like me, then what I've just told you is so dreary and so depressing that you know you will find literally anything to put off doing it. So once again, I say, get someone to help you. If you hate the idea of doing a budget, look around you now and the people with a sort of smug smile on their faces as I'm talking about budgeting, they're, they're the ones who are good at this stuff. So ask one of them to give you a hand. Now, you might need to bribe them uh, with something that fits with their sort of organized lifestyle, some really nice post-its or a highlighter or something like that. <laughs> the point is, ask for a bit of help. Budgeting makes a difference. It really, really does. I asked on my social media, um, what do you wish you had been told 20 years ago about money in your church? And like 95% of responses said, I wish someone had told me or taught me how to budget. 
So everyone seems to agree how important and valuable it is. Okay, number two. Give some of it away. The number one way to break down money's grip on your heart and to exercise generosity for what you already have and to remind your own brain what is important and what is less important is to give up some of that money on a regular basis. Giving money away breaks money's grip on me. Now, I want to invite you to consider giving to the church, partly because it's an investment in the work of the kingdom of God in your community, partly because we couldn't do any of this without people's financial support, partly because it says to do so in Scripture, but most of all in the context of what we're talking about tonight, because it shapes and changes who you are. Now, naturally, with the economy as it is, and prices what they are, there's probably not a single one of us who isn't finding life harder now than we did a couple of years ago. So, naturally, we might be inclined to not start giving right now. After all, we might need it, right? But Jesus shows us in Luke chapter 21 when he comments on the widow giving the two small coins, saying that she has given more than all the people who gave huge amounts of gold Jesus shows us that attitude is more important than amount in the kingdom. Attitude is more important than amount. God isn't impressed by the biggest standing order or the largest wedge of cash that gets stuck into the box back there. God is looking for the heart that says, I release control of myself including my money, to trust God. So my encouragement to you, if you feel that money has a grip on you, give some of it away. If you don't currently give at all, maybe consider giving an occasional gift of of what you can afford in that moment. Or if you already do that, maybe consider giving more regularly, building regular giving into your monthly budget budget. Or if you already do that, maybe consider increasing the amount or regularity of your giving, challenging yourself to create a bit of sacrifice in your financial life. Remember, it's the attitude, not the amount, that matters most to God. If it's a financial stretch to give one pound a week, think about doing so. You can't be in love with money if you gladly let go of it. Now actually later on, our weekly video is going to be talking about uh, giving to the church and what our budget is for this year and some of the things that your giving goes on. As it happens, that's a coincidence. We didn't plan that to align with, with this talk. But if you do feel the Lord stirring you to start or increase your giving, uh, then on that video there is a link that you can follow or you can grab one of these flyers from the back. Number three, finally, I want to ask you an uncomfortable question, just in case you're not uncomfortable already. So this question applies to everyone, but it particularly applies to you 
if you feel that you've got money things pretty much sorted, if you already budget, if you already give generously, if you consider yourself fairly financially stable, but if that's not you, don't switch off. It does apply to you too. Okay, here it is. Where is there space in my life, my financial life, for faith? Where is there room in my financial life for faith? Where is there room for God to challenge you, to stretch you, to show you the secrets of his economy, which break many of the rules of our economy? Let me give an example. About 20 years ago, I was doing a a gap year training course in Manchester. Uh, I was working on housing estates with young people, and the course was full-time. So in order to buy food and get the bus and stuff, I needed to rely on budgeting the money that I had fundraised beforehand. But as we have already established, I was rubbish with budgeting. So obviously, I ran out of money. So I prayed, God, help. I need to eat, please. The next morning, an envelope dropped through the door, and inside it was a check for 50 quid. It was from a lady called Deborah, who I didn't really know that well. I had worked with her for a little while in a a previous job. I had been doing, we had maybe had 10 conversations ever. Uh, And there was a note together with the money that said, I was praying today, and I felt God tell me to send you 50 pounds. So here you are. Now, what I really love about that story, other than the fact I got 50 pounds, what I really love about that story is it's not just my experience that shows us something about how God can interact with our finances and faith. Now, yes, I learned two valuable lessons, really. Valuable lesson one, should have budgeted better. Valuable lesson two, I can have faith in God for my finances when I need it. But think for a second about Deborah. Deborah sat in her quiet time and she felt God say, today I want you to trust me with some of your money. Send it to that kid that you worked with that time. Deborah didn't know I needed it. She didn't know that I would spend it well. But she was prepared to let faith into her finances, to follow the nudge of God and trust him with some of her money. So I ask you again, think about your financial life. When was the last time that you had to trust God with it? Either with something that you needed, or with him asking you to release something, or invest in something. Are you open to God leading you to do anything he might ask with your bank balance? So, number one, budget. If you don't already, start. If you do already, help somebody who needs help. Number two, give. Money cannot have a hold on your heart if you give it away. And number three, ask yourself, where is there room for faith in my financial life? We're going to worship again now. As we do so, I want to invite you again Sorry, I want to encourage you again to invite God into your financial life. What might he be saying to you today? Amen.